This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. My name is Connor Mackey. I'm the Young Adults Leader and Creative Arts Director here at Coopersville Reformed Church. And I want to say I'm thankful that you're joining us here at CRC, whether you're in person on this holiday weekend or joining us online. Maybe you're at the beach or on a boat or something. Likely not joining us from online if you're at the beach, but just in case. Or if you're watching this later on uh, on YouTube or something, we're glad that you're joining us here today. Uh, I'd like to start by kind of recapping the past two weeks, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into today. Because uh, when I was given this opportunity to preach, I don't know how many months ago, three or four months ago, when we laid out the schedule, I had an idea in mind. Um, But as God oftentimes changes our plans, as we got closer to this week, I heard the last two week sermons, and I thought, nah, nah, we're going in a different direction. Because two weeks ago, John preached on how David defeated Goliath, and in a way he was this national hero when he did that. Uh, And then he went on to say that the good news is is that we have an even greater David. We have Jesus who defeats Goliath for us, who defeats death, evil, and sin, right? And that's what John preached on. And then you had Stephen who then preached on uh, about public confession. And it was a really convicting message And so then I started thinking about David and public confession and where that may lead. And today we're going to explore a little bit harder side of David to see. And it is his very, very horrible sin of David and Bathsheba and how God confronts David through the prophet Nathan and his confession and how there is joy and rejoicing. And so that's where we're going today, but before we do that, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this place where we get to come to worship you. I think of the songs that we just sang, how your faithfulness is great, and how great you are, Lord God. There's nothing in there that's about us. We simply go to you at the cross, and you forgive us. Father, I pray that today would be a day of recognizing the good faithfulness that you give us and the salvation that you give us. Lord, I thank you for all that there is to celebrate today. 19 salvations is a big deal. And the angels are rejoicing in heaven and we will rejoice with them. God, I thank you for this time together your word. I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. If they are not, then strike them from my mouth. And I pray that anything that is not of you, we would not remember. God, continue to encourage us to dive into your word together as the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So I'm going to start by telling you the story of David and Bathsheba. This is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, but we're going to be flying through that and then on to chapter 12 and then into Psalm 51. And so I just want to tell you the story of David and Bathsheba and add in some historical details that may be relevant. The story starts by telling us that it is springtime. It's springtime in Israel. And that's an important detail because in spring, the kings go out to war. Springtime is a time where all of the crops are planted. You have a good base for the military. You have a lot of soldiers available to you. And it's also nicer weather in Israel. And so the king in spring goes out to war. This is so that they can encourage their soldiers on their new military campaigns that they would start in the spring. This is so that the weather would be better for the king while they are out at war. And protection is important for a king because you have more soldiers around this king in the spring. There's just one thing. In this particular spring in Israel, David is not out at war. David is at home where he's not supposed to be. And while he's at home, he's walking on his palace roof, and he's purveying his kingdom, so to speak, and he looks down and he sees a woman bathing named Bathsheba. And David has lust in his heart and invites Bathsheba to come and see him. And because you don't say no to the king, Bathsheba goes to David. They end up laying together, as the text says, and Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And she sends word to David that she is pregnant. Well, there's a detail that's important that makes this a little bit complicated. You see, Bathsheba is married. Not only is she married, because you might be asking the question, well, where is Bathsheba's husband? Bathsheba's husband is out at war. Remember where David is supposed to be. He's supposed to be out at war, and instead he is at home with the wife of one of his soldiers who is fighting for him. And so David freaks out a little bit, and he invites uh, Uriah to come back home. He says to Uriah, come back home to Israel, uh, let me have a word with you. And so Uriah comes home, uh, David says to him, you've had a long journey, why don't you go and see your wife and rest at home? But Uriah is a good man, and he doesn't go home. Instead, it says in the text that he sleeps outside of the, uh, the palace doors, where the servants of the Lord would rest. That's because Israelite soldiers, when they go to war, they make vows to one another that they are going to honor one another. And he cannot imagine uh, in being with his wife while his brothers are dying on the front line. And so he goes and he sleeps outside of the palace doors. And David hears about this. And David is not too pleased about it. So he moves on to plan B. That was plan A. Let's move on to plan B. He then gets Uriah drunk. He gets him plastered, as they say in college. He gets him so drunk that his plan is that he'll go and see his wife, and he won't have any memory. He won't be able to control himself. Uh, but evidently, I don't know if this is a, some wordplay in the text, but Uriah falls asleep on the couch instead, and he doesn't go to see his wife. David's plan A has failed. David's plan B has failed, and so he resorts to plan C. 
invites Uriah back, and he holds up a letter, he hands it to Uriah, and he says, bring this to your commander on the front line. Uriah, being a good soldier, takes the letter, says, yes, sir, and brings it to his commander. Little does he know is that the letter reads this, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. This letter that Uriah carries is his own death sentence. He doesn't even know it. In his mind, he has listened to the king, and yet the king has handed him a letter which will bring him to his death. And this is exactly what happens uh, later on in the story. They make an attack on the walls of the city that they are laying under siege. And uh, if you know anything about historical strategy when it comes to battle, you typically don't approach the walls uh, because they have bows and arrows and rocks. And Uriah is struck down along with a few others because David has sent this command. Um, this is David's perhaps lowest point as we look at his story. And so I want to name the two sins that he commits. He commits adultery and he commits premeditated murder. And we can call it that. He had a plan in place to make sure that Uriah would not be coming home later that day. This is the story, the background of David that we get. The story ends by saying that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. No duh. Of course, this would displease the Lord, but the text wants to make sure you absolutely know that this thing displeased the Lord. And so God then sends Nathan to David, and we're going to read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up. And he brought it up and gave it, uh, gave it, whoop. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the one who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David makes a little bit of a mistake by responding in that way. Because Nathan then says to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. 
Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie, he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. That is a harsh word to hear from a prophet. Remember what a prophet is doing. They are speaking on behalf of God. David knows what he's done. And if he wasn't sure what he's done, the prophet uh, explicitly labels what he has done. And then says, you have done this thing privately, and it has displeased the Lord. I will do this thing publicly to you to make sure that everybody will know what has happened. Here's the thing about this passage. We hear this like dramatic response from God. We hear this response that is uh, very much so, if you were to hear that spoken to you, you'd probably be like, oh, whoa. Like, I need to back off a little bit. Like I need to go to forgiveness, uh, go to God for forgiveness. But in verse 13, the response that David gives seems a little bit anticlimactic. Verse 13 says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And that's it. That's the only response we get from David at this point. And so it leaves us, the reader, you know, thousands of years later, wanting a little bit more, confused by David's response, because this would be like me walking into your house, looking around and saying, nice house you have here. This is mine now. You'd be like, excuse me, that's not how things work. No, this is my house now. It's mine. And then I pull out gasoline and then spray it all over the place and then burn it down and then just say to you, I've sinned against the Lord. You'd be wanting more, right? You'd be like, excuse me, Connor, but that's pretty dramatic. Like, that's not enough. That's not enough of a response. And yet that's what we're given here in 2 Samuel 12. And then the story goes on and ends uh, by saying, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And that, to us, is a really hurtful thing to hear. But then the passage still ends with, then Nathan went to his house. Nathan went home. It seems like the story has more to it that we are missing, and truthfully, we are missing a little bit of the story here. You see, I have sinned against the Lord is not David's full response. His full response is found in Psalm 51, where we will go now. So I want to give you a little bit of context about Psalm 51. You know the context, uh, the literary context, as they say. Uh, the context is uh, David and Bathsheba and being confronted by the prophet Nathan. Uh, but we also need to understand that Psalms are relatable to the hymnal. So we have a hymnal. We have this book that uh, if you need to, you could open it up and say, we want to play Psalm number 321, and you could hand that to a choir member, and they could pick it up pretty quickly and play that psalm, and we could all sing that psalm relatively easily. The psalms are very similar. Uh, they are for the choir of Israel. They are public 
hymnals that the, that the Israelites could walk into the temple when it's built or into a synagogue or into a place of worship and say, choir master, we want to sing Psalm 51. And so when David writes this psalm, he's not just writing this poem to God and himself in a journal. He's writing it to the people of Israel, a very public matter. And so we're going to read through this psalm, understanding that this is David's response to Nathan, to the people of God. It is a public confession. And we're going to be pausing a lot as we go through this psalm. So get ready. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let's pause there for a moment. Because there's some language in there that may be a little confusing to us. We assume we know the definition of certain words and we just read over them. I do it all the time when I read my Bible. I go, yeah, I know what that means, and I keep going. But here's a tip for you. If you want to be a better biblical reader, yeah, start defining words. Because you'll find that there's a lot more depth to these words when you look at the definition of these words. And so have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Steadfast love. We hear that word and we're like, yeah, we know what that means. Steadfast love means that like, God doesn't let go. Yeah, that's like 50% of the definition. The steadfast love that David is appealing to here is the relational love which he cannot earn. That sounds familiar because it's the type of love that Jesus offers on the cross. It's nothing that we can earn and it's nothing that can be let go of. Steadfast love in this context is David saying, have mercy on me according to the type of love which I will never be able to earn. Why? Because he's committed adultery and premeditated murder. He cannot earn this love. Continuing on in those same verses. Blot out my transgressions. Pause. Transgressions. What does that even mean? What does transgressions mean? We hear that and we're like, that means sin, right? If that were the case, then the verse would read, blot out my sins, wash me thoroughly of my sin, and cleanse me from my sin. These different words are used intentionally to make a point. So what is transgression? Transgression is better described as a political treason. Political treason. So the verse could read, blot out my political treason, because what has David done? He has, uh, he has broken the law of God. He has politically been traitorous, I don't know, to God. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity. Iniquity, again, what does that even mean? Uh, there's no great English word for this word iniquity, but wash me of my iniquity is washing me of my twisting of you. And so what has David done? He has twisted the situation to better fit what he wants it to look like. He had three plans to make sure that he was not caught in this situation. He has twisted the situation, twisted the word of God so that he could get away with what he wanted to do. And cleanse me from my sin. We might not think we need to define sin, but just to be thorough with where we've been, Let's define sin as uh, turning away from God's goodness 
and appealing to evil, which is what David has done. Let's continue on in the psalm. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let's pause there for a moment. This is also a hard passage to read. Uh, some have used this uh, passage as an argument for, well, David has been sinful for, since the day he was born, which um, is an okay idea. We can talk about that at a later point, but what I want you to understand is that this is poetry. It's imagery. The guiltiness of what he has done is so great in his heart that it permeates all the way back to his birth. That's the type of guilt that David is facing here. Let's continue on in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth and inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You're going to see a transition happening right here from downcast David to David which rejoices. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Did you see the shift? It just went from blot out my transgressions, I am a sinful being, to renew me to what is good. This is where we shift from I am, uh, I am a sinner to I am uh, a loved one of Christ, right? The first half is focused on David's sin with Uriah, and the second half is painting a picture of where he wants to be with God, a place of joy. And I think that this is an important image that we need to have in our mind. Because when we go to forgiveness for God, from God, right, we're not just going and saying, like, oh, I'm sorry that I hit a baseball and broke a window, right? It's not that type of forgiveness. It's a type of forgiveness that restores our very joy, our very being of who we are. VBS is an image of this. So the whole week is just kids having fun, learning about the Bible, singing praise to God, and it's awesome, and they're all cheering all the time. But then Thursday comes around. And Thursday's the main day in my mind, because I, I got to sit up there, and I'm, I'm taking video and whatnot. And then Bethany gets up here, and she goes, hey, this is serious. I need everybody to quiet down a little bit. Because we just had 19 kids give their heart to Jesus. And you know what happens? The entire room starts cheering. And then Bethany goes on to say how like when, when that happens, there are angels in heaven rejoicing with God. And we get to join them in that. And it's, it's incredible to me because I'm sitting up there and like, you know how they say in graduation, like please hold your applause to the end so that uh, no kid feels left out. You can hear all the names. There's no holding the applause till the end. Bethany reads a name, everybody cheers. Bethany reads the next name. Everybody cheers. And it's this image of the angels rejoicing and us having joy in that salvation with those little kids. 
And so Bob Boom, a while back, we mentioned like a salvation at one point. He said, we missed an opportunity to praise. Folks, we missed an opportunity to praise today because 19 kids were saved on Thursday. That's an opportunity to praise the Lord. We should be cheering. David's image of forgiveness that he gives here in the psalm is one of restoration, one of joy rejuvenated, where he can be right with God. Why does it matter that David wants to get this, to this point? Why does David want to be restored? Well, he answers in verses 13 through 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Why does David want to be restored to this point? To live, as we say, sent. To be missional. That others other sinners would return to God so that he can teach those political, treasonous people the ways of the Lord. David is the king of Israel. He represents them in all matters, political, cultural, social, everything. He represents them. And it is his responsibility as the king of Israel to represent them well as a servant of the Lord. We too have this responsibility. We are servants of the Lord. And we too have this opportunity, this responsibility, however you want to label it, we have this chance to represent Jesus on earth so that we can teach transgressors his way as well as see sinners return to him. This is our mission. And what I think is, I was about to move on, but no, there's more. What's important in all of this is that you see David's testimony as not being clean. There's some dirtiness in his testimony. Uh, many of us can probably relate to that, that there's some dirt and grime in his testimony, and yet he uses it as an opportunity to say, transgressors will learn from this. Sinners will return to God because of what has happened. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. I think we've, many of us have been in that state of like feeling guilt. And yet David is able to see that as an opportunity for worship and for bringing others into the, into the salvation of God. And then we have the finale, verses 16 and 17. The grand finale. I love this part. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. And here's why I love this. Adultery is a little bit easier to forgive, but premeditated murder is pretty hard to forgive. For the Israelites, uh, there is no offering that can be offered 
that will make David clean again. In Israelite tradition, when you sin, uh, you often would offer an animal, a burnt offering, uh, as a way of making yourself clean before God. We do not appeal to that. We have the cross, which has made us clean. But that is what David is thinking of when he writes this passage. There isn't a law for premeditated murder. Remember that word steadfast before. David has to appeal to God's steadfast love for his forgiveness. Why? Because it is love that cannot be earned, and it is a love that clings on to who it has been given to. David's only option here, folks, is not a sacrifice, but to appeal to God's steadfast love, the type of love which will not forget us, will not uh, leave us, and the type of love which we cannot earn. He has rebelled against God. He has twisted God into an image that better suited David. And he has missed the mark so as to, he has sinned so bad that the arrow cannot be found. He missed the mark so bad. And yet he is able to appeal to God's steadfast love. That my friends, is an image of the cross. We have sinned. We have turned from God. Sometimes we have sinned intentionally, and yet our only option is to appeal to the cross, to appeal to Christ for his steadfast love, which does not leave us, does not fail us, does not let us go. That is our only option. And friends, our responsibility in that is to share that with others. And so I'd like to pray for you uh, as, we, as we dive into worship in a moment here. Um, but I want you to walk away with this image of this is not cheap grace. Uh, this is not an image of grace uh, which is just like you're saved and then you move on and you do nothing. The image that we have here in 2 Samuel 11, 12, Psalm 51, everything that we just went through, the image that we have is the type of grace which takes the worst of the worst, restores them to joy, and then that person restored to joy then says, I will teach others about this joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness, for your uh, everlasting joy which you have offer, offered us. I thank you that your love is steadfast. It does not leave us. It does not forsake us. It continues to search after us, God. And I pray that we can come to a point in our life where we can just seek you and know that you will find us. God, I thank you for this body, for this church that you have offered us an opportunity to both worship here but then go out and teach what you have taught us to sinners, to transgressors, to anybody who needs to hear your word, Lord. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and was resurrected, defeating death. And I thank you that we have an opportunity to be a part of your body where we can openly come to one another and confess our sins. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And let's sing your praise in Jesus' name. Amen.